0: Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, Episode 39, Despair on the Danube. Today, on our continuing adventure through the depths of the new Europe created by Versailles, we're stopping in on a pair of unhappy divorcees. Austria and Hungary, once imperial partners in Central Europe, found themselves ground to a pulp by late 1918. The institution holding both together, along with each of their collections of subject peoples, had been the Royal House of Habsburg. And while that house had been an increasingly old and creaky one, the empire had held together under it. The disasters of World War I, though, destroyed all that. In the face of military defeat and starvation at home, the legitimacy of the ruling family fell away. And with those bonds broken, the whole empire shattered into pieces, and the Hungarians took their cue and cut ties with Vienna. The Austrians, paralyzed by the loss of the power that had so defined them, could only look on in bewilderment. Both nations were reduced to rump states, and as the interwar years opened, they permanently went their separate ways. The first I'll go through is Austria. It's kind of hard to imagine just how much of a fall the Austrians suffered in the aftermath of World War I. For the better part of 500 years, their ruling dynasty had been among the most prominent royalty in all of Europe. For centuries, they had governed a large collection of nations and peoples that included a dozen odd major ethnic groups, and despite its disjointedness, had maintained a preeminence in Europe that was respected, if not entirely feared, by many. But the victorious Entente were wholly uninterested in preserving any part of the empire. They had allies with territorial claims that needed satisfying, and part of Woodrow Wilson's Fourteen Points of Peace was a call for national self-determination among Europe's peoples, which was most applicable to the multi-ethnic Austro-Hungarian Empire. The components of the empire, whether by choice or by force, would be going their own ways. The empire dissolved, and suddenly the Austrians found themselves no longer the center of a major power. Which was a huge issue for them, and not just for pride reasons either. Much of the Austrian economy, especially that in the capital of Vienna, was set up with the assumption that it would be the centerpiece of a large nation. Now there wasn't a large nation. And the industries of the country, second only to the Czech lands to the north within the old borders, depended on resources coming in from the rest of the empire. Something as basic as food was now a critical issue. The nation was already in the throes of starvation from the war, and now their main suppliers just to the east and Hungary were separated by new borders with trade policies independent of Vienna's control. The entire Austro-Hungarian Empire had been a mostly self-contained economic entity with the needs of one region met by the resources of another. Now, national boundaries separated this entire network. And while it certainly affected everyone to one degree or another, Austria was especially dependent on its subjects. To make matters worse, there wasn't really a ready-made national mission statement on hand either. Shorn of an empire, the Austrians started to realize they had not formed an identity outside of their imperial context. Having been unplugged from one large state, the Austrians initially tried to hook up with another. In November 1918, the last Habsburg emperor, Charles I, relinquished power and eventually left for exile. While the monarchy had been totally discredited by wartime failure, it had also been previously the only national institution the Austrians could point to as theirs. Shorn of this legacy, they were now just another group of Germans. Being aware of the whole identity issue, the new government started discussing joining Austria and Germany together. After all, the only thing that had stopped that taking place decades ago during the German unification was the entanglement Austria had with its empire, which was now totally gone and no longer an issue. The Entente, though, caught wind of this and immediately swatted the idea down. They weren't about to allow the Germans to expand their borders, at the exact moment they were working to contract them. So the Austrians had to go out into the world on their own for the first time. And it was to prove a bleak experience. In 1919, communist revolutions broke out in Bavaria right across the border in Germany, as well as in neighboring Hungary. Watching the chaos of civil war play out around them, the democratic socialists of Austria declined to harness the revolutionary energy in the cities during these early months. This also probably had something to do with the nation's food supply being wholly dependent on shipments coming from the Entente, who were deeply opposed to any revolution in Central Europe. In response to the Hungarian revolutionaries asking them to join with them, the Austrian Socialists shrugged and told them their only concern at this time was not starving to death, which I'll admit is a pretty decent excuse to decline an invitation for a revolution. That, however, did not save these social democrats from the wrath of the extreme right. The base of their support was always the major cities and especially Vienna. For the provinces, though, sprung right-wing groups fearful of the left, and the disinterest of the centrist parties to work with them left the socialists badly isolated. From there, the story of Austria played out much like its cousin to the north. The socialists were the single biggest party and a political force, but coalitions formed to exclude them from power. As much as possible. The streets saw political gangs split between the right and the left fight each other, with the Social Democrats employing their Schutzbund Group to combat the conservative Heimwehr. In one notable 1927 incident, the shooting deaths of two people by a member of the Heimwehr, one victim being a child, caused a general strike after the defendants were acquitted on the grounds of self defense. On July 15, 1927, a crowd of protesters reached the Austrian Parliament building where the police, under conservative control, waited to block them. Clashes resulted in fires were started in the Palace of Justice, and the police started breaking out the rifles. They opened fire in the crowds, killing 89 protesters and wounding 600. The squashing of the protests badly weakened the Social Democrats, and from that time, the right of the country was in the ascendancy. By the end of 1929, Parliament's power had been legally curtailed, and the office of the President was made able to make government appointments And override legislation which set the stage for a future dictatorship even before the nazis would take over further down the road the politics of austria in the 20s can be summed up as a protracted grind by the far right to undermine the left with indifferent establishment parties either standing aside or facilitating the right out of distaste for the socialists that chaos coupled with the lack of a true national identity also left the population as a whole with little respect for the weak state that was unable to meet their needs, and most people saw the nation as artificial. There would be constant intrigues among the nation's factions, and unlike the years post-1945, the victors didn't assist in building new national institutions, mostly sticking to providing foods they didn't starve and coal so they didn't freeze to death. Austria's neighbors and former subjects were likewise uninterested in coming to the aid of their former overlords. For its first four years, the Austrian Republic would have to rely on the kindness of the indifferent great powers for the resources just to keep the lights on. Inflation was also rampant as the government printed money to cover its expenditures now that it no longer had access to the empire's resources. This in turn only further enhanced the nation's miseries as costs spiraled out of control. The big problem, aside from access to food and fuel that the government couldn't solve, was that there were simply too many people who had found employment in the imperial government that needed unemployment support now that their positions no longer existed, and they had to be supported somehow in order to keep them off the streets and thus stave off revolution. Over the course of 1922 alone, the money supply in Austria went from 174 billion crowns to a trillion. Only the intervention of foreign loans in late 1922 something that would be repeated in Germany and elsewhere during the 20s, stabilized the budget enough that control was restored. Happily for Austria, the injection of foreign capital wouldn't turn into a dependency like it would for Germany. And for the rest of the 20s, it did provide the economic stability that allowed the nation to become more self-sufficient as investments were made to expand agricultural output to compensate the old sources of food that had been lost. And in addition, Industrially, the country did bounce back, and continued to be one of the region's biggest exporters. That all being said, though, these were gloomy and uncertain years, and at every point during the 20s, the people were noticeably worse off on average than before the war. Vienna, which had been one of the world's major cultural capitals, lost its luster as it settled into its new role as the center of a small and isolated nation. And thanks to the introduction of foreign loans to bankroll the new state, The Austrians also had to start implementing reforms to please their creditors. Notable among those reforms was cutting loose those idle civil servants on the payroll, which made economic sense, but also further alienated much of the population from the new state, as the old bureaucracy had supported a significant part of the population. Which just helped further create the conditions where anti-democratic forces were in the ascendancy by the end of the 20s. I'll definitely be checking in again on the Austrians as their internal politics turned into a roller coaster after the Depression, which only created more instability, and invited the interest of a certain prodigal son. Turning to the East, Hungary had a much wilder ride during the 20s, so I'm going to return to my usual step-by-step format to cover their details. Uh, Just to give you a heads-up, this is about the time when Balkan grudges start entering the picture, so expect me to cover some long-standing grievances in future episodes. As the ruler of the eastern half of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Hungary had governed over not just its core land, but that of Slovakia, Croatia, the northern part of modern Serbia, and Transylvania, which is the western half of modern Romania. Far more than the Austrians, they had worked to curtail their subject ethnic groups, restricting their speech and culture and public life and education. These efforts very much failed to turn these people into loyal Magyars, and only served to inflame nationalist sentiments, especially among the South Slavs and Romanian minorities. By the time World War I ended, the Kingdom of Hungary was broken apart in the Treaty of Trianon, and two-thirds of its land went to other nations. Three-quarters of its population of 28.5 million were now outside its borders. Stuck with a reduced population of 7.5 million, there were still an additional 3 million more Hungarians now living in Czechoslovakia, Romania, and Yugoslavia. Simply put, it was a disaster for the country. Rattling off statistics makes it sound perfunctory, and the breakup of these territories was anything but. Towards the end of 1918, it was obvious that the empire was doomed. By the fall, Serbian and Romanian troops had reversed their earlier defeats and were entering the country. A noble named Count Mihale Karoli assumed leadership at the end of October, and in early November, an armistice was made with the Entente. However, those Serbs and Romanians decided to keep marching intend to grab up as much land as they possibly could. By January 1919, their troops had reached roughly the modern frontiers of their nations. Karolyi tried to appeal to the Entente, pleading that self-determination meant that at least some of the seized territory would remain with Hungary, as ethnic Hungarians lived there. But the Entente were unmoved. The Hungarians had been too heavy-handed to their subject peoples, who were now extracting maximum payback on the defeated overlords. The defeated Hungarian army was meanwhile too weak and fractured to offer meaningful resistance. And speaking of the army, many soldiers captured by the Russians earlier in the war out east were starting to be shipped back home. And a funny thing happened to many of them out there. They had been exposed to Marxism while in their prison camps. One of these soldiers was a man named Belakun, who actually took part in the Russian Revolution. And once that went so well, he decided to return home and see if he could spread the revolution there. On November 24th, 1918, the Hungarian Communist Party was founded and began spreading the good word. And the nation was ripe for revolution. The core of Hungary sits on what's called the Danubian Plain, called that since the Danube River runs through the middle of it. Unlike pretty much every surrounding country, Hungary was a nation of flat plains and fertile soil. As a result, the country was devoted to agriculture, and was a breadbasket of Central Europe, exporting foodstuffs all over the old empire. The problem was that Hungary was also a very old-fashioned country, and this vast set of farmlands was dominated by landed nobles who operated gigantic estates. The average Hungarian working the land was likely a hired hand dependent on the good graces of said noble. I've mentioned before the conservative mindset of a farmer. But that mostly applies if said farmer actually owns the land and is responsible for it. For most Hungarian farmers, it was just a job, and they wanted a piece of the action. There was one major exception to the agrarian character of the nation, and that was the capital of Budapest. That city was heavily industrialized and represented the overwhelming share of the country's urban life. And it's where the Communists made their first move. In the first week of January 1919, the urban workers staged massive strikes and started seizing factories. This, in turn, set off revolutionary sentiments across the nation, which made Karolyi and the government understandably nervous. On February 16th, 1919, the government passed a law announcing that parts of the Great Estates would be divvied up and given to the farmhands in an effort to cool tempers outside of Budapest. Karolyi even made the gesture of being the first noble to start passing off some of his own land. An Fortunately, his counterparts of the nobility weren't so accommodating and declined to go along with the new law. The peasants, not satisfied with only portions of the estates being doled out to them, and enraged by the resistance of the nobles, simply started taking the land over. Some even organized collective farms on the land taken. On the 21st of February, the communist leadership was arrested in an effort to stop the disturbances. Uh, But that had no effect beyond making the government look hostile. The communist leaders simply continued giving directions from prison, and even started negotiating with the Social Democrats in establishing a new government. Then in mid-March, news came in of the initial Entente plans for divvying up Hungary and a request to establish a neutral zone between them and the Romanians, as well as zones in the west of the country where the French army was moving into. It was all a humiliating request, as it effectively relinquished control over the eastern half of the remaining country to either Romanians or to revolutionaries. Curlie, at this point, couldn't see a pathway forward that he could stomach and let the communists out of jail and assign control of the government over to a revolutionary committee. Which might seem like quite a turn for a nobleman, but keep in mind he was simply transferring blame over the inevitable territorial losses over to the leftists, very similar to how the conservatives transferred blame over to the SPD in Germany during this same time frame. Regardless, on the 22nd of March, the revolutionary government declared a republic, while Kuhn was given dictatorial authority. Three days later, all available troops were organized into a new Red Army, and the old aristocratic officer corps was removed. Industry, transportation, and agriculture were all nationalized. Social reforms such as wage hikes, laws protecting the equality of both sexes, and child labor protections were all implemented to widespread approval. Naturally, the nobles were relieved of their estates, the lands turned over to worker management. Now, the Entente did not like this turn of events one bit, and decided to aid efforts against the new state. The economic blockade was kept up, and weapons were turned over to Hungary's neighbors in preparation for an attack. On April 16th, the Romanians began moving westward, and while the Red Army was pushed back, the invasion aroused a patriotic frenzy that greatly boosted the Red Army's strength which was good, because Czechoslovakia was preparing to move in from the north. Supported by fresh troops, the Hungarians actually beat the Czechs back and entered Slovakia. The hope was they could clear a land corridor to Ukraine and link up with the Russian Red Army. That was something that weighed heavily on the Entente's collective minds as well, as having the Bolsheviks right smack in the middle of Central Europe wouldn't do at all. To the southwest of the country, near the border with the emerging Yugoslavia, A right-wing counter-government had taken shape in the town of Zigi. The city had not fallen under communist control as the French army had moved into the area at the end of World War I, and now it was to be the base of the emerging counter-revolution. The most notable figure in this nationalist government was Admiral Miklos Horthy. Having lost his navy after World War I, he was now leading the anti-communist ground troops. Ultimately, this government didn't have to do a whole lot the economic blockade was causing resource shortages that crippled Hungary much the same way as it had crippled the Bavarian communist state earlier that year. Shortages of basic goods disillusioned the peasantry, and by summer the communist grip on power was secured only by its control of Budapest and the Red Army. On June 7th, the Entente offered a truce if the Red Army pulled away from the Romanians and evacuated Slovakia. In exchange, the Romanians would end their invasions and evacuate as well. Kuhn agreed to the terms, but the Romanians refused to pull back until the Red Army had been disarmed. Obviously unwilling to disarm the instrument, which was the very thing maintaining his own authority, Kuhn refused and on July 20th broke the truce and attacked the Romanians again. The Romanians easily beat back this attack and resumed their advance, this time getting to within around 60 miles of Budapest. Seeing as how the military situation was hopeless and the revolution was falling apart around them, On August 1st, the communist government dissolved itself and much of its leadership fled the country, including Kuhn, who eventually made his way back to Russia. I might bring him back up later on, but in case I don't and you want to know what happens to him, he dies during Stalin's purges. A provisional government was then set up in Budapest, but was immediately couped by another one. This didn't particularly matter, as Admiral Horthy was the one who actually had an army on the ground and set about securing the nation. French withdrew and left him the western part of the country, while his troops secured the remaining eastern parts not already overrun by Romanians. Along the way, he and his nationalists began to launch purges of any suspected communists that they could get their hands on. 5,000 were executed and 70,000 were imprisoned during this white terror. Terrified and angry by the communist reforms, the upper and middle classes, along with them the old state apparatus and religious clergy, rallied to Horthy's banner to reverse their disenfranchisements. It was in the midst of this chaos that the Entente again set expectations for a return to normalcy. While the Nationalists were in the ascendant, the West made a free election to form a new government, a key requirement of Romania withdrawing from the country. So while Horthy entered Budapest on November 16th, he could not do so as a conqueror per se. But neither could a government be formed through parliamentary means either and going into 1920, there still wasn't a solid leadership in place to move forward. Curiously, the one thing that was agreed upon was that the actual Kingdom of Hungary would not be dissolved, and the throne would remain an institution. The problem with that, though, was the most legitimate claimant, the ex-King Charles of the Habsburg family, fourth of his name in Hungary while also the first in Austria, carried the burden of being discredited by the greatest defeat the nation had known for centuries which was kind of a pretty good disqualifying condition. Yet, nobody else really presented themselves as suitable candidates either. The solution was a compromise that would be maintained all the way to the end of this podcast. Instead of appointing a king, there would instead be a regent to serve in that hypothetical king's stead. And given his military dominance over the nation, it was Admiral Horthy who was selected as that regent on March 1st, 1920. Now, Horthy being an admiral, was not exactly a conquering ground commander. And so far, he had appeared deferential to the nation's traditional power brokers, so he was seen initially as a stopgap leader. Like any good authoritarian, though, he defied those modest expectations, and once installed as regent, he used the loyalty of his troops in the vacuum of credible leadership to exert more and more power over the government. This was a-okay with the Entente, who were satisfied enough by the parliamentary elections held first in October 1919 and then again in June 1920. Regardless of the legitimacy of such elections, held during a time of violent retribution while a strong man controlled the armed forces in the nation, the Entente was satisfied that the elections had taken place at all. Now at least, they had a non-communist government with a veneer of legitimacy to work with. It was also in June that the Treaty of Trianon was finally signed off on by that government, which, given the colossal territorial and population losses, sent the population into a pit of despair. So, too, did it severely constrict the nation's economic prospects as well. Being cut off from all the mining areas in the Outer Rim of the Kingdom meant that the country was forced to double down on agricultural production, and further industrialization would be badly stunted. Not to say that agriculture was in such great shape, either. Owing to the demands of horses and other beasts of burden, to say nothing of the soldiers drawn up to fight, the output of the farms was half that of pre war levels. The collapse of the empire also meant the end of protections it had enjoyed previously. Before, the tariffs imposed to discourage trade outside of Austria Hungary meant that Hungarian producers could get premium prices for their crops from the captive markets within the empire. Now these protections were gone, and they had to compete with international suppliers, many of which did not have to rebuild following a devastating war. And these problems would not be eliminated anytime soon, either. A stable-ish government, under Count Paul Telecki managed to establish itself, and soon set about the work of reversing most of the communist reforms. The land redistribution schemes were abandoned, and instead it was the Jewish minority that was seen as a target for the land-hungry peasants. And it was their properties that began to be confiscated. It wasn't nearly enough to satisfy the peasants' needs, though and the emboldened nobles successfully resisted calls for reform by claiming any breakups of the major estates would only further hurt production at this critical hour. The cities were not much better off. Unemployment insurance was canceled, hours were raised, and chronic unemployment stalked the urban workers. Those economic problems remained unresolved going into 1921, when there was an attempt to return the king to the throne. Many in Hungary had grown apprehensive of Horthy and believed, despite all his protests to the contrary, that he intended to establish himself as king. Charles IV forced the issue by entering the country from Switzerland in March 1921. Teleki supported the move, especially since it would get rid of Horthy. Too bad for him, Hungary's neighbors were in no mood to see the Habsburgs return and threatened invasion if Charles were re-enthroned. The now pretender. Took the hint and scampered out of the country as quickly as he had arrived. Teleki was caught out in the open and resigned over the affair, leading to one Count István Bethlen to take up the reins of government with the support of Horthy, which also reinforced the Admiral's position as the true power in the country. Bethlen, who had up until that point been a supporter of the ex kings, now faced the reality that the Habsburgs really weren't coming back and threw in with Horthy. This alliance was put to the test in October when Charles came back yet again, this time impressing upon the army the oath they had sworn to him back in World War I. Some responded, and a very brief civil war erupted, as Horthy and Bethlen sent troops against the king, who they too once upon a time had sworn personal loyalty to. In the ensuing battle, Charles was beaten and captured, and Horthy arranged for him to be shipped off to the island of Madeira in the Atlantic Ocean, like a pathetic echo of Napoleon. Bethlen officially deposed the Habsburg dynasty, and together with Horthy would dominate politics moving forward. The partnership would not be a productive one for the Hungarian people. Despite an influx of foreign loans, investment remained terribly low. I've used the example of Germany using foreign loans to fund a flimsy boom period, but Hungary couldn't even accomplish that. Instead, 80% of the money coming in was used to pay off older debts and essentials like fuel. Unemployment remained a chronic problem, usually around 10-15% to 15% through the 20s, while workers were earning less than before. Worker strikes cropped up in the years between 1925 and 1928, but these were repressed violently by authorities before they could take on a revolutionary character. The Social Democrats were not of much help in this regard, as they had cut a deal with Bethlehem back in December 1921 that allowed for industrial workers to organize and protest, they would not try to spread their operations to farmhands, miners, public sector workers, or railroad workers. Which meant they isolated themselves, that when push came to shove later on, they couldn't resist the government. For the Hungarian leadership, the only way out of the morass was a restitution of lost territories. The Treaty of Trianon was seen not just as a defeat, but a terrible injustice on the Hungarian people. For centuries, they had ruled over others and even in the following centuries of foreign conquest had preserved their culture and hierarchy. The treaty was not just a loss, it was a mistake, one that was to be rectified. To that end, liberal democracy was not allowed to take root, and Bethlehem especially made every effort to support the various political parties to the nationalist government. And while Hungary was far too weak to go attacking its neighbors, especially with that little Entente alliance in effect, they did start laying the groundwork for a reckoning. In Slovakia, networks were set up to agitate for that region's detachment from Czechoslovakia and its return to Hungary. These efforts were amusingly funded via counterfeit Czech currency, and when found out, the Hungarian agents simply switched to counterfeit French money. Contacts were made with Croatian nationalists in Yugoslavia, and the first stirrings of fascistic cooperation were made when Mussolini was approached for a partnership against Yugoslavia. These were all very tentative moves, but show that Hungary was fully willing to revise the peace agreements made in 1919. All they would need was a partner strong enough to help break that circuit of powerful neighbors surrounding them. With an embittered Hungary firmly established, I'll leave you for the week. Next time, we'll head down to one of those neighbors I mentioned, Hungary's arch-rival Romania. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening.